This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Earlier this year, Harbir Singh, Wharton's Vice Dean for Global Initiatives, launched a series of faculty trips to foreign countries as a way for faculty to gain a deeper understanding of international economies and then to use this knowledge in their teaching and research. As part of this initiative, six faculty recently visited the Chinese cities of Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen. Knowledge at Wharton interviewed three of the participating professors, Harbier, along with management professor Saikot Chaudhary, and healthcare management professor Rob Burns, to discuss insights and information they picked up during this trip. Harbier, Rob, and Saikot, thanks for joining us. Saikot, you mentioned in an earlier conversation that executives you met with are interested in the globalization of Chinese companies, partly through acquisitions, partly through increased outsourcing. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Certainly. Chinese companies are, of course, aspiring to become uh, global players, and we actually see a variety of approaches that they're taking. Hire, for example, has taken more of an organic uh, route, even though it did attempt to buy Maytag unsuccessfully. Huawei has also taken an organic route. Um, They had attempted to uh, buy U.S. robotics or take a stake, and that was unsuccessful. However, Lenovo is probably the prime example, having bought IBM's PC business, where they did successfully use the acquisition strategy. And the main reason is uh, beyond quick access to markets like the United States and Europe and so forth, they need high-end technologies and also established brands. Those are the elements that the Chinese firms have been missing, and so it fits very well to combine the strong back-end and cost-efficient back-end of Chinese firms with the uh, branding, market access, and technology that uh, Western developed firms can offer them. Harbir, you and others noted the role of the Chinese government in creating infrastructure for its economy and the benefits of that to businesses at large. Can you talk more about that? I remember in 1997, I was standing... Uh, on the Bund, uh, which was an area where all the various uh, international uh, communities used to be pre-communism, and looking across the river and looking at a lot of construction on the other side, and people were saying there'll be some office towers and uh, businesses here. And I was envisioning maybe something the size of downtown Philadelphia. And now when I came back, uh, you know, of course I visited many times, but now when we landed in Pudong and went through to the Grand Hyatt in Pudong, this was a whole new city with uh, large uh, modern skyscrapers. uh, And I was completely amazed at the huge contrast. Of course, I've been to China many times, but that's just one illustration. If you look at uh, Shanghai Airport, look at Beijing Airport, these are truly world-class airports. Uh, You have the maglev train coming into the city. uh, And so the most populous nation in the world appears to be uh, functioning at a very high gear in these big cities. And what that does is it creates an opportunity for businessmen and uh, and executives uh, to to develop their products and services um, in, a, in a world-class setting. I think that's the main uh, benefit of infrastructure in terms of roads, uh, electricity, um, internet communication, and, and so on. So I think that's been remarkably impressive of China over the years. How does this compare to the situation in India? So India is a a dramatic contrast. Uh, I think if you look at India, we have uh, much less infrastructure development, physical infrastructure development in the same period of time. 
In fact, uh, many projects are underway, but they are moving very slowly. Uh, and this is something that people in India will will also say. So this is, an, I think, an objective reality. What India has going for it is the development of soft infrastructure, the human capital, uh, the use of the English language, which allows uh, service uh, professionals to work with companies around the world. So you have this remarkable contrast. What's interesting is it doesn't have to be that one of these major developing nations chooses the hard infrastructure and one chooses soft infrastructure. But for now, that's what has been the path. Rob, you were able to see firsthand the efforts that China is making in the area of health care reform. What exactly are they doing? And are they running into the same obstacles that the U.S. is, that is, finding that you can't do everything at once and also ensure high quality at low cost? Yes. Uh, first, just to follow up on Harbir's comments, uh, China's also investing a lot in their healthcare infrastructure. In particular, they're rebuilding their hospital industry, which is primarily publicly owned facilities. Uh, they're also rebuilding uh, their primary care system. Basically, they didn't have much of a primary care system. Uh, they relied on uh, lower-level hospitals to provide primary care, and now they're trying to build these community health centers. So there's a massive investment in both primary and secondary and tertiary care taking place in China. What China's discovering is that uh, they have their own version of the Iron Triangle of healthcare. Uh, it's the issue our country has dealt with for the last 70, 80 years, trying to balance three conflicting goals of improving quality, improving access, and controlling the rate of increase in cost. They're now discovering the exact same thing, and their health care reform initiatives are designed to provide broader access to health insurance for a population, and yet at the same time, while they provide that broader access to improve the level and quality of care, that expands the cost of care, and so they're trying to figure out ways to control the cost as they increase access to health insurance. Does their government structure make it easier to get these things done than, say, in the U.S.? Their government structure is very similar to ours. It's an incredibly fragmented government bureaucracy with different ministries overseeing different parts of the health care system, with different insurance plans for different segments of the population. And like us, they're going to try to craft together a universal system by basically cobbling together all these different components. Uh, by being provided with access to companies and high-level executives, like uh, you mentioned Hire and Lenovo and Huawei, you were able, all of you were able to get insights into things like concerns over social unrest, the pollution problem, and efforts to build a knowledge-based economy. W what's the current thinking about how to deal with these issues? Well, I think, um, you know, any developing country, and for that matter, any developed country, will have challenges because there are inherent trade-offs to balance. And so that is a very natural outcome um, of, of managing conflicting demands uh, as you grow. On the uh, point about building a knowledge-based economy, I think that's what struck me uh, the most. It's very interesting because here the contrast with India also becomes apparent. Uh, China has strong infrastructure and has been able to build a very strong manufacturing-based economy, whereas India has, has veered towards the uh, knowledge-based economy. And now, of course, both countries are trying to do the other. Uh, in China's case, they're really investing a lot of money in trying to set up uh, firms and the appropriate ecosystem to foster innovation. And that means venture capital, entrepreneurship, and processes which will help to, to further innovation because that's something I think China sometimes uh, – 
suffers from in the image, um, as far as the image is concerned, um, it's not easy because building infrastructure is a matter of capital. Building an innovative ecosystem requires uh, several elements to come together and also uh, the exchange of ideas amongst uh, the right individuals. But honestly, um, I'm confident that given the way China has managed its economic growth so far, that this will also be a step that they will successfully um, manage. What about the pollution problem? I'm wondering, Rob, if you could talk about that since it is a health care problem at the it's, same it's, time. Yeah, it's a huge public health issue for the Chinese. Uh, they have a number of public health challenges. One is the pollution, both in the air and in the water. Then you have uh, public health habits. There's a, a, an enormously high smoking rate in China with very little smoking cessation programs taking place. So you have all these things taking place. The thing that compounds the problem for China is that the, the public health dollars are disproportionately spent in the urban areas, whereas the, most of the population lives in the rural areas. So they have, a, they have a, a, a problem of trying to allocate resources to where the problems are. One thing I noticed, uh, I think in, in Beijing, we were in a very high uh, hotel in the top floor looking out, and we were told that it was one of the clearer days, but I thought it was actually very hard to see structures around. And this is true for, as Shekhat was saying, for de the developing world, you know, the, the classic problem of uh, how do you grow rapidly and keep these greenhouse gases under control. Um, it seems China is working very hard on it because their own population is uh, putting pressure on the government. Uh, but at the same time, clearly there is a lot of work to be done there. Were there any signs of social unrest? Did that issue raise its head in anything that, that you did over there or saw over there? We had the party secretary of uh, Beijing, who we met, uh, allude to that. But it was more in the spirit of one of the factors that uh, he saw in the, uh, in the remote areas. Um, so that was one place where it was specifically raised. I think he also mentioned just how important it was to try to contain the, any social unrest and the importance of stability in keeping this economic engine going forward. In one sense, you could just say it's about managing diversity. Because really, you know, China's a big country with a huge population, and they have many different types of people with varied interests. And so it's about meeting the aspirations of those people and, and managing the differences as much as it is um, promoting some uniformity in a standard of living. Uh, during your trip, you all indicated that Chinese officials made it very clear the U.S. is to blame for the financial crisis. And they talked about providing a different model. What is that model, and how successful do you think it can be? I suppose um, that uh, one way to look at the alternative model is perhaps not unbridled capitalism, but uh, with selective intervention and some controls. And uh, I suppose this is, of course, the debate that's been going on around the world um, in countries which thought that uh, they've perfected the model, such as the United States, but also the European countries. So it's a wider debate. Um, I would see it as not yet being established uh, what is working, because we have some confounding factors here, right? So you could attribute the uh, success in, in managing uh, the crisis to a particular system uh, in the emerging markets, but you could also attribute it to the inherently higher growth rates 
that they've been experiencing due to the um, rise that they've had over the last several years and the tremendous domestic demand and other factors driving it. You know, So, so I, I do think it's uh, good food for thought and should uh, fuel the debate so that we can come up with appropriate structures globally to avoid such crises in the future. Um, it's not yet evident to me what exactly the model might be, though, and, and perhaps where the balance may lie. So one of the things that uh, was referred to was the whole the, the impact of derivatives on uh, the U.S. economy and the decline of uh, many of the financial uh, valuations and portfolios of uh, banks and other institutions. And I think one of the things they I think because they have less exposure to derivatives, there was a sense that these controls or being a little bit uh, not quite in these exotic instruments was helpful to them. Uh, I hear similar uh, comments in India where people say that the Central uh, Reserve Bank actually had uh, put uh, certain some limits on uh, derivatives. So many of these mortgage-backed securities and all those uh, exotic instruments were not allowed to be traded in India. Now, what, does that mean that there's a better policy? Well, that's a whole different question. But uh, maybe it speaks to some degree of conservatism, and um, and that in this case was helpful. President Obama recently returned from a visit to China where he encountered efforts to restrict public access to him and also came in for some blunt criticism over the weak U.S. dollar and low interest rates. The Chinese also accused the U.S. of protectionist trade policies because of their actions against some Chinese products like steel pipes and coated paper. Do you have a response to this lecture that Obama got, and do you think it signals a worsening of relations between the two countries? So there's a high degree of dependence between both economies. That's absolutely clear. And uh, one of the questions that I think is divisive among many is uh, the yuan and where it is pegged in the international uh, markets. And uh, given that China is the manufacturing hub of the world, one of the interesting questions is if you revalue the yuan, what happens to the costs of those products in uh, the economies where they're being exported? And this is one of the more complex issues where I think it was underlying the debate uh, and uh, not clear what the right answer is, but the the dependence is so great that this is going to be an ongoing debate. So they'll, on one hand, perhaps um, uh, exhortations to revalue the yuan, on the other hand, arguments that, you know, we are protecting um, our products and, and they're both inter- interlinked. You know, just to add to it, in the uh, healthcare arena, I think the the interesting development there is the Chinese are undertaking health care reform at the same time we're undertaking health care reform. And I don't think it's any longer the case where we have lessons to offer other countries. Other countries are now, you know, saying we have lessons to offer you. Saikot, you noted that a whole generation of Chinese has seen progress now for about the last 30 years, and a lot of overseas Chinese are, in fact, going back to China, not just senior people but junior people, too. Do you think that will continue, and what are they going back to? Yes, it indeed, it struck me. And we talk about this so-called reverse brain drain, or nowadays it's known as brain gain, uh, both in the context of China and in India. I think in China's case, it started earlier, and the scale is also uh, a bit higher. Um, Robbie, as you noted, uh, what was particularly impressive is that it's not only the senior people who go into um, senior roles, especially at multinational corporations based in China, who are now taking this uh, opportunity, but it's also the junior people. And we see that uh, here at Wharton as well, increasingly. That signals to me very, very clearly that the opportunities are there to actually build a career. 
And earlier I was talking about building the right uh, ecosystem for a knowledge-based economy. And uh, the soft infrastructure, the people, are, of course, a critical element. So uh, beyond uh, building the hard, inf hard infrastructure to get the right mentality, mindset, it's very, very critical for China to get back some of that talent, which has, has uh, gained experience from abroad. And undoubtedly, um, they're, uh, they've become very, very attractive as a destination. So I, I think it's a very, very important driver. Um, if I may also note, uh, the entrepreneurs that we spoke to um, were to a large extent also of that, uh, of that type. And uh, they can, of course, appropriately take business models from both sides, blend them, and find what is unique, both for domestic purposes, but also to build new global players. So what's happening on that front, I think, is a very, very important uh, driver of China's future aspirations to become an entrepreneurship and, uh, and knowledge-based uh, economy. So uh, one thing that um, I noted uh, with respect to uh, people going back to China and to India uh, is that the rates seem to be increasing every year, and that suggests uh, the perception of opportunity that our recent graduates uh, see in those in those uh, economies. So that's the first point that opportunity is rising uh, in in some kind of a very visceral way because people are voting with their feet. But the second is uh, that we met seasoned entrepreneurs who had moved ten years ago or fifteen years ago. And and they saw confirmation of their uh, sort of projections early on, and I think the idea of the ecosystem is very interesting because they were in a, in some sense the creators of the ecosystem, which now these uh, young uh, recent graduates are getting into. And related to that, we had the Wharton Alumni Forum uh, not too long uh, separated from there, and there were over 700 alumni, many of whom were coming from other countries looking into China. Uh, my final question is. What were some of the, the more impressive business practices or products that, that you saw in the firms you visited? You know, I don't know about the most you know, impressive practices. I think the most impressive thing I'm seeing is that the huge uh, set of demand drivers that are going to accelerate the Chinese healthcare economy. And the projections are stunning that within maybe 30 years, China will be the largest pharmaceutical market in the world, eclipsing the United States. That's stunning to, to everybody who studied the pharmaceutical industry. And the same thing may happen with medical devices, too. So, so what I found fascinating about China were two things. One was uh, scale and the rapid rate of growth. There's no question that, um, that it may not be a linear path, but it's going to be uh, you know, a major large market in, in almost every industry. Um, but, the, but the other part that I found interesting was when we went to Lenovo, and the head of product development for Lenovo was talking about uh, the role of the North Carolina facility of Lenovo, the role of the Japan facility and the Beijing facility, and how they all work together um, kind of around the clock, as it were, but with a lot of face-to-face -face interaction. So they're trying to grapple with the issue of how to work across borders. And I was sitting in the conference room and saying, this conference room could easily be in uh, Silicon Valley or in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, but happens to be in Beijing. And he was saying the same thing. He often doesn't know which part of the world he is in. So Lenovo has, in the product development side, created a global organization. To build on that uh, a little bit further, 
um, I think new forms of organization are being experimented with and being designed and helped uh, to be promoted by uh, these firms. You know, I've been mentioned Lenovo. They're really building a distributed organization in many ways with uh, simultaneously having interaction to allow for 24-hour development cycles, yet at the same time expertise in certain pockets um, to be developed and to be globally applied. And uh, I think that applies to the emerging markets. I I can't help but be reminded when the Korean and Japanese uh, economies really took off and, and those firms rose to prominence, they also brought interesting new management practices, such as in the area of supply chain management. And I really do believe that firms like uh, Lenovo or Hire or Huawei will contribute at that level as well, as I do believe that uh, Brazilian and Indian and other emerging market firms will also do. Great. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 